Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events, places, and people we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we are continuing our three-part series as we explore the lives of Tennessee's three presidents— Andrew Jackson, James K. Polk, and Andrew Johnson. Each of these three men had an enormous impact upon Tennessee and United States history over a time frame that spans over 40 years, Jackson being elected in 1828 and Andrew Johnson ending his term in 1869. Of course, their contributions have been felt far beyond their presidential terms, and many of their policies are still relevant to this day. All of them have been in the news lately, It is also interesting to note that Murray County, Tennessee, was, in a way, a crossroads in their lives. James K. Polk called Columbia home, but both Andrew Jackson and Andrew Johnson each spent time here. The subject of our conversation today is the 17th President of the United States, Andrew Johnson. I'm joined today in the studio by my co-host, Dr. Barry Goodcomb. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Tom. And joining us via telephone uh, is Kendra Hinkle, the museum specialist at the Andrew Johnson National Historic Site in Greenville, Tennessee. Welcome to History's Hook, Kendra. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before we dive into the life of Andrew Johnson, Kendra, uh, I I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about the Andrew Johnson National Historic Site. It's run by the National Park Service. Uh, When did it open? How long has it been open to the public? Um, It opened in 1942 under the National Park Service when several different areas of the site were consolidated. Um, And the site consists of four different areas. We have the Johnson's Tailor Shop. We have his early home. Um, A few blocks away, we have his homestead, which was his later home here in Greenville. And then about a mile from there is the National Cemetery, which is um, Johnson's burial place, but also the final resting place for about 2,200 veterans. Wow. So um, when visitors go to Greenville, and, and I've been there, I, I think, two or three times over the years, Greenville's a beautiful town, sort of tucked away on the edge of the edge of the Smoky Mountains. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that struck me, I know, when I first drove into Greenville, is how appreciated Andrew Johnson is in that town. You're going to see a giant statues of Johnson, and you're going to see National Park Service uh, signs all over town. I, I think Greenville's done a really great job embracing Andrew Johnson. How long have you been with the site? I started here full-time in 1998. I had worked seasonally before that, and even before that, I started as a volunteer in high school for the Holiday Open House, playing the uh, family's 1869 Steinway Square Grand Piano. Wow. <laughs> you got to touch the stuff. That's you great. some longevity. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's wonderful. So you're you're local to Greenville, then? I am. You've been there the whole time. That, that's amazing. How many visitors uh, get to come and see the site? I'd say between fifty to 60,000 a year. Right. Uh, that's wonderful. And the site has been run by the Park Service from for its entire history, or, or did it start as a private nonprofit? No. Originally, the Taylor Shop was operated by the state of Tennessee, okay. and the National Cemetery was operated by the War Department. So it was it was later on, and that was earlier in the 20th century. Okay. And then it was later on that... 
as I said, it was all consolidated under the auspices of the National Park Service. Well, it's a, a wonderful site, and I encourage all of our listeners, uh, next time you go to Greenville, stop stop in and, and uh, visit all of the Andrew Johnson sites. It's a, a wonderful place. So, Andrew Johnson, uh, unlike uh, James K. Polk, and, and the listeners know by now that I worked for the Polk site for 21 years, Polk was always fun because I got to talk talk to people about Polk. Most people didn't know a lot about him, but they were always surprised, and especially surprised, to find that he ranked among the top presidents in terms of success. Andrew Johnson is sort of the other end of the spectrum if you're looking at the rankings. He, he's fared rather poorly in the various rankings of the presidents. The very first ranking by historian Arthur Schlesinger in 1946 placed him, I think, at his highest ranking at number 19 out of what was then 29 presidents. Since then, Johnson has dipped a bit. The Siena College poll in 2018 placed him at number 44. Um, Kendra, not to, not to put you on the spot, but what, in your opinion, what's the biggest reason, do you think, for that, for that ranking? Why, why is he downtrending okay. a little bit? Right. Here we go. Well, they say that asking a question of a park ranger is like trying to take a sip of water from a fire hydrant. So <laughs> here, here we go. Um, I'm going to dare to say in many ways it was the presidency itself, and I'll explain. Um, before the presidency, Johnson's star almost couldn't have been higher. Um, he'd given rousing pro-union speeches um, prior to the Civil War. He'd been the only Southern senator to retain his seat when the other seceded state senators left, brought Tennessee back under Union control without slavery during his military governorship of the state, and he was actually a prime choice for the vice president because the National Union ticket was a way to appeal to loyal Southern Democrats as well as to Republicans in combining the two parties. That way Lincoln could make good his pledge to bind up the nation's wounds. Um, so as good as a choice as he was for vice president, um, he was facing a monumental odds as president. Um, his presidency followed a first presidential assassination. It followed a first civil war. It faced reconstruction, questions of citizenship for six million formerly enslaved people. And it faced an America pummeling headfirst into the industrial revolution. So the somewhat belligerent and pugnacious personality that had stood Andrew Johnson in good stead up to then in stump speaking methods became somewhat his undoing as president. Mm. He was intent on carrying out Lincoln's reconstruction plan, but that wartime policy didn't really prove stringent enough in quote peacetime. Um, Johnson's amnesty proclamations really just ended up emboldening former Confederate leaders to regain their former seats of power in local and national governments. And that fueled tensions for the freedmen in the South, Republican lawmakers in the North. And the freedmen's protection was less important to Johnson than maintaining his interpretation of the Constitution. So his determination to limit the power of the federal government, maintain the sovereignty of state control, um, it, it wasn't enough for a country that had evolved so dramatically during the last four years. Right. And in many ways, the nation was shifting from the United States to the United States of America. <laughs> right. That, and that's a great point. Yeah. Here's a hypothetical question for you as well. Do you think anyone in that position at that moment in American history could have been successful? 
Right. Given, and, and given that's everything very, very that's going question. going on, I mean, it's probably the most complex period in American history because there are so many factors at work. the The country is completely changing, and and I guess that's a the rhetorical question: could could anybody really have been a successful president following right. an assassinated Lincoln odd. and trying to wrangle everything that that needs to be wrangled in order to make the country whole again and move forward? Um, mm-hmm. And there was the Lincoln mystique. And, it, and you know, in many ways, people have said that the battle transferred from the battlefield to Washington. <laughs> and, and what you ended up with were radicals on both ends right. in the congressional and the executive branch. And, um, you know, maybe somebody who was willing to compromise more, who had more of that flexible personality, but Andrew Johnson just simply didn't. Kinder, oh, one question that we always have is had abraham lincoln lived had lincoln not been assassinated uh it would have been lincoln that continuing to butt heads with the radicals mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. of course lincoln had the prestige of having won the war but is it possible that lincoln wouldn't have fared much better with the radicals in the aftermath of the war than andrew johnson did yeah, that's one of history's most compelling questions, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think he would have run up against the same same problems, but again, I think Lincoln's personality would have been more malleable sure. to working out a solution. Yeah, but we just we simply can't know. Right. Um, Johnson has been categorized by many historians as having come from the poorest and humblest of beginnings. Uh, when and where was he born, and in what circumstances did Andrew Johnson mm-hmm, get was, his start? Yeah, he was born in Raleigh in North Carolina on December 29th, 1808, to, to very impoverished um, circumstances. Um, his parents were poor but honorable people in uh, Raleigh. His father, Jacob, was working at Casso's Inn, where he met and married the laundress and seamstress Mary McDonough who people called Polly. (laughs) And after their marriage, Jacob went through a variety of jobs, janitor, porter at the state bank, constable, um, captain of the town watch. But in 1811, he saved some acquaintances from drowning in an icy pond and caught ill and died shortly thereafter when Johnson was, when Andrew was only three years old. So he loses his father when he's just three years old, but his father kind of dies, at least in hindsight, kind of a hero's death. Did, do we have a sense? Right. Did was there a legacy that came along with that? Did did Johnson Andrew Johnson benefit from having a father who was sort of a hero in the community? Do we have any sense of that at all? No, not not really a sense. We do know that that Johnson went back to Raleigh later to uh, erect a headstone for his father. So there may have been that you know, welcome home sure. son at that at that moment. So Johnson has to go to work, and he is apprenticed, like his older brother, to a tailor. Uh, I think mm-hmm. he was indentured, if my reading was correct, he was indentured from age 10 to 21. Uh, what was that experience like for young Andrew Johnson, uh, learning how to be a tailor at, at the age of 10 and having to support himself oh. and his family? Very, very young. So it appears that Actually, unofficially, he was apprenticed at nine. Okay. Which the thing about Johnson's birthday being December 29th, you almost always have to subtract right. a year. Um, but he was taken in by um, a Mr. Selby there in Raleigh, who taught him a trade. And 
I think one of the most important things that Mr. Selby did was bring people in to read to the tailors and apprentices while they worked. And one man in particular brought a book called The American Speaker. And this book ended up inspiring Andrew so much that he asked to borrow it. And the man told him that if he learned to read it, he could have it. <clears throat> and we still have that book in our collection. Really? Um, and one day I decided to pick it up and read the preface to see if I could see what inspired Young Johnson. Um, so there it was in black and white. And if I can, I'll just read a little bit of it. Please. It said, without some proficiency in oratory, there seems to be an insurmountable barrier to the patriotic aspirations of genius. With it, the road to distinction is obvious. It has been our aim in making this selection to endeavor to fire the minds of our young men by placing in their view some of the brightest examples of genius and to enable them with lips of fire to plead their country's cause. And that's Andrew Johnson, 2AT. Those are, those are heady words. So you have a, a 9 or 10-year-old kid who's spending every day of his life uh, sewing and making clothes, mm -hmm. learning the trade, and to hear words like that sort of uh, probably makes him transcend where he is and, and think about life differently. Exactly. What could be instead. Amazing. Amazing. So uh, he's indentured with Mr. Selby for how long? Well, not that long because he uh, ended up being a rather what they called harem scarum boy. And he and some boys got into trouble um, throwing rocks at a woman's house. And she threatened to prosecute and they ran away. <laughs> so he and his brother, if I remember correctly, both right. ran away. There is a reward mm -hmm. put out for them by Mr. Selby. Uh, I think we, we actually, uh, we, when we did an exhibit years ago at the Poke, you loaned us a, a copy of what the reward looked like. And it said, $10 mm -hmm. reward, ran away from the subscriber, two apprentice boys, legally bound, named William and Andrew Johnson. Payment to any person who will deliver said apprentices to me in Raleigh, or I will give the above reward for Andrew Johnson alone. So I found that very interesting. So he and his older brother, I think his older brother's maybe five years older, something like that, they run away. Mm -hmm. So he's willing to pay $10 to get these boys back, or $10 just for Andrew. So is that telling us that Andrew was an accomplished tailor, e even by this young age? What, what does that mean, do you think? Yes. Yeah, I think so. It, it it shows that he was sort of fierce and determined in whatever he did, even at that point. And later on, Johnson would say of himself, I always made a close fit and did good work. <laughs> uh, do, do you all have any of the clothing that he made in your collection? Do you have anything at all that we he have, made? We do have a wedding coat that he made on display there by the tailor shop. A wet, his own wedding coat or someone else's? Someone else's someone that he else's. made for someone. That's wonderful to have to have that. So where did the brothers run to? Did they get away? They went from Carthage to Lawrence, South Carolina, um, where, incidentally, Andrew met a girl and fell in love. And he, they were either working on a quilt together or he made a quilt for her and had intentions of marriage. But her parents didn't allow the marriage because they didn't think he would amount to anything. Hmm. <laughs> Famous last words. Uh, they continue moving along. If I remember in, in the story, they're sort of traveling all over the place. Uh, there is a story mm -hmm. that, uh, and it's been written in a couple of biographies, that Andrew Johnson actually winds up here in Columbia, Tennessee, apprenticing for a <laughs> tailor. Uh, have you heard that story before? 
I have. Um, and I, I looked that up to refresh my memory. It was a James Shelton in Columbia. And as a side note, it was said that Mrs. Shelton felt a very motherly feelings for the lone young journeyman and uh, tried to give him a good life while he was there. Huh. We're we're trying to locate exactly where the place was. We'd love to be able to put something up and, and that'd be uh, amazing. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, so uh, a a boy, he's walking everywhere he goes, and if you consider he's going in North Carolina, South Carolina, traveling to Tennessee, and then eventually, mm-hmm. uh, which is not the pattern, heads back back east again and settles in Greenville, Tennessee. We're going to stop the story right here for just a second. We need to take a break. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hello, this is Rick Tillis with Tillis Jewelry in Columbia and Lewisburg, Tennessee. What are you looking for in a jeweler? Knowledgeable staff? Experienced goldsmiths? Or true custom designers? Experienced working with clients creating that perfect gift for a special loved one? Well, you have found them. Tillis Jewelry. We're this and so much more. Check us out at TillisJewelry.com or on Facebook and Instagram to see our latest creations. Tillis Jewelry, Columbia and Lewisburg, Tennessee. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me, painfree.com, or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. 
Today we're talking about Andrew Johnson, and we have joining us via phone Kendra Hinkle, who works at the Andrew Johnson National Historic Site in Greenville, Tennessee. If you're just joining us, uh, we've been talking about Andrew Johnson's early life, uh, how he was apprenticed as a tailor, uh, and uh, as really just a boy, he's traveling around uh, uh, to South Carolina, North Carolina. He makes his way to Tennessee, settles for a very brief time here in Columbia, and then heads back east. Kendra, he eventually settles on Greenville, Tennessee to to make his home. What was Greenville like at that time, and what was the charm for Andrew Johnson? Okay, well, Greenville was a pretty thriving village when Johnson got here. It was founded by a big spring. Uh, there were newspapers, colleges in the nearby vicinity. Um, and he just happened to learn when he went to the post office that the town Taylor was growing older. And a Mr. Brown ordered a suit from him. And um, for a little while, he moved on to Rutledge, Tennessee. But before long, he was back because another very important thing had happened. Um, when he'd first come to town, he was spotted by a group of girls. One of them was named Eliza McArdle. And supposedly, she told her uh, friends, there goes my bow, girls, mark it. So that was good incentive. <laughs> and uh, so what do we know about Eliza? She's, she seems like an interesting person. Yeah, she gets lost later on, I think, when she becomes ill. But she had quite a bit of spunk, I think, when she was younger. Um, she had um, been the daughter of a Scotch shoemaker and tavern owner. And she'd been educated at the Ray Academy here in Greenville. And her father died. So she and her mother continued to make quilts and sandals for the people of Greenville. So that's kind of a commonality then that Eliza and Andrew exactly. share, as they mm -hmm. both lose their, their fathers. Um, and they court, we assume, for apparently not very long because they get married when Andrew is 18 years old and Eliza just 16. Uh, right, our I've, youngest married presidential couple. Oh, good, good factoid. I, I found it interesting. The Justice of the Peace was a man named Mordecai Lincoln, who is a cousin to Abraham Lincoln. Isn't that amazing? A fascinating, <laughs> another fascinating fact. Um, it is. Most of the history books speak about Eliza being the one to teach Andrew how to read and write. Is that is that true? He had the rudiments of an education by the time he got to Greenville, and she even admitted that she helped further his education. So his writing skills, arithmetic, we still have some of the books that she used to tutor him by, and he would practice his signature using every available space down the side of the page. So Andrew uh, opens his tailor shop. He's married. Mm -hmm. They're starting a family, and he's doing well. By by uh, all the, the sources, he's actually doing very well financially as a tailor in, in this community of Greenville. Where Where does politics come into play? How old is he when he jumps into the political arena, and what is the first thing that he runs for? Okay, and it's pretty young because his tailor shop, as is often the case, like with local barber shops maybe now, it became the gathering place for the men of the community. And um, he would walk to the debating societies and meetings at the local Greenville College, and he had such a knack for it that his contemporaries encouraged him to run for office. So he did. Um, he ran for alderman of Greenville and one. And that was in 1829, so just two years after he came to, to Greenville. So we're so, looking about 20 years old. 20 years old. And uh, 
and one of the the themes that sort of keeps coming back throughout his political career as his political star is rising is what an effective orator he is. For a man who has no real formal education, he kind of takes to sort of the idea of what we would call now maybe lifelong education. He's reading voraciously, but he becomes a very effective orator. Is that a natural talent, do you think? Or did he hear other orators in town? Is that a learned response? Or is it a natural talent, do you think, that ability to be this this amazing public speaker? Um, I think natural somewhat, but also harkening back to the American speaker. <laughs> he was, you know, a voracious reader of speeches. And I, I think he tried to learn the cadence and the, the skill that came along with that. After Alderman, uh, I think in 1834, he becomes mayor of Greenville. Uh, so he's getting some executive experience at that point in time. And after just one year doing that, he wins a seat to the Tennessee House of Representatives. Is that correct? Right, right. And and at the time that he's beginning his political career, Andrew Jackson is president of the United States. What do we know about their relationship? Did, did Jackson and Johnson know each other? Don't think that they ever met, but... Jackson definitely influenced Andrew Johnson's political ideals. <laughs> um, he's a Jacksonian Democrat. Um, you know, all the concepts like maintaining the federal union, uh, popular election, term limits, disdain of monopolies, those, those, those were all definitely influences in Andrew Johnson's life. Sure. And he's going going to the state legislature, representing uh, his district in East Tennessee. How, how long is he in the state house? Oh, mercy. Let's see. He becomes a state representative in 1835, again in 1839, again in 1843, 47, 49, and 51. Wow. So, <laughs> so, he, so he's in and out of the state legislature a long time then. So he becomes a presidential elector for Martin Van Buren in 1840 when Van Buren is making his run for an unsuccessful run for the presidency and loses to William Henry Harrison. Um, so Johnson's in the middle of that, uh, giving speeches for Martin Van Buren. When Van Buren loses, did that hurt Andrew Johnson's political prospects? Not not so much as you might think, because during that time, Johnson remained instrumental in keeping Tennessee and Greene County um, in the Democratic column. And then he was elected to the Tennessee Senate, and uh, where he served a two-year term. Right. So it sounds like his speech making, he's, he's kind of making a name for himself statewide. He, he's right. already in the House, right. but this his ability to become a presidential elector, giving these speeches to much larger audiences, I think, by that point in time, actually, actually exactly. benefits his, his political career. Let's talk for a second about Tennessee and Andrew Johnson. Tennessee is a slave state in this time. Did Andrew Johnson engage in slavery? He did, yes. Do we know how, um, how many enslaved people did he have, and what were his feelings on the subject? Because East Tennessee is not plantation country. It's not like this area, Middle Tennessee, where there's a, a huge slave population in this area. Um, how, how, how did he engage in slavery, and, and what were his feelings on the subject? Right. Um, he purchased his first slave in 1842, um, a, a woman named Dolly, and then he purchased Dolly's half-brother, Sam. So uh, he owned up to 10 slaves, so Dolly, half-brother Sam. <clears throat> Dolly would have three children, Liz, Florence, and Will. Sam would marry a woman um, named Margaret, and they had three children born into slavery, 
whose names were Dora, Robert, and Hattie. Um, there's also a, a man named Henry, and Henry and Florence would end up going to the White House with the family as servants after emancipation. And I would say that, that Johnson's feelings on slavery did evolve over time, um, despite what his presidential actions still seem to denote. Um, he did free the slaves in Tennessee, or his slaves on August 8th, 1863, which is still um, celebrated as Emancipation Day in East Tennessee and surrounding areas. And he freed all the slaves in Tennessee um, in October of 1864. That's while he was military governor. And all along, he was more for gradual emancipation. And, and I can't help but think because it's knowing Southerners as he did, he feared that immediate freedom and suffrage would lead to class wars. And uh, later on, he even proposed extending um, the elective franchise to all persons of color who could read the Constitution, write their names, and who owned real estate and pay taxes. Um, so he, he's very much a man of contradictions. As so many are in that time frame, uh, I think James K. Pope mm -hmm. fits that mold as well. Andrew Jackson, for that matter, is also sort of in that same – there's a that odd dichotomy going on between slavery in the theoretical versus slavery in practicality. It's a, right, a fascinating right. issue. I, we should explore that on this radio show at some point in time. Um, what about uh, James K. Polk and Andrew Johnson? They knew each other at this point in time. I think uh, Johnson wins uh, uh, by 600 votes a seat in the United States House of Representatives in 1843. A year later, Polk becomes president. Uh, do we know what the relationship was like between Johnson and Polk? Mm -hmm. I think it began amicably. <laughs> Johnson's daughter Martha even visited the Polks in the White House while he was president. Um, he would visit. She would visit. Sarah, and Sarah sort of took her under her wing while Martha was in school, and we've got some jewelry that Sarah gave Martha, still in our collection. But later on, I think Johnson kind of considered Polk a weak presidential candidate because of the two notorial losses prior. Um, he did support the president um, with the Mexican-American War, but they had conflicts over patronage issues, and... Uh, I looked up a quote that, that Polk said. He's he's very vindictive and perverse in his temper and conduct. So once again, that belligerent personality coming into play. Right. Um, yeah, Polk, Polk didn't uh, have much good to say about people who went against his political ideals. So uh, I think they were probably a match for each other. Um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Johnson is elected to five terms in Congress and then goes on to be governor of Tennessee. Uh, so we're going to have to stop there again. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. 
I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hubs for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. A while back, I told you a story about Packer, our mascot, that Don found in the garbage truck after someone had thrown her out. Well, since then, I've been asked several times about Packer. Is she a dog or is she a cat? I guess I never thought to say, but she's a pit bull mix. And you can see a picture of her sitting in the driver's seat of Don's service truck on our website, garbagemaninc.com. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about our 17th president of the United States, Andrew Johnson. Uh, We've brought his story up to the point where he spends five terms in the United States House of Representatives, and then he leaves his seat to become governor of Tennessee. Kendra, uh, do we know what he did as governor? I think governor was one of his strongest (laughs) offices. Um, platforms, because on the state level, he created a public school system, so everyone could have the chance at education, like he had not have, Um, founded the state's public library, started the state fair to benefit um, farmers and craftsmen, artisans, like he had been. Like he had been. And his dearest wish had always been to help the mudsills of society. Right. So I think he spends two terms as governor of Tennessee and then throws his hat into the ring for the U.S. Senate seat uh, where he's elected. And so this is bringing us up into the 1850s where we have some major issues uh, on the floor of Congress being debated, including slavery, the idea of popular sovereignty, uh, and outright secession. So he, he's in, in the midst of sort of these very weighty Uh, ideas that are starting to split the country apart. Where is he aligning himself as the country starts to make that split leading into the election of 1860? Mm, Again, in in the words of Andrew Jackson, (laughs) the union, the federal union, it must be preserved. Um, That was Johnson's battle cry. And these, his speeches in favor of the union made him a sensation in the North had his likeness burned in effigy in the South. But again, he's a man of contradictions because it's all for the Union. He was preserving it um, with or without slavery. Which makes him terribly fascinating to my mind, that he he's a Tennessean, he's a slaveholder, but he's a Unionist. And and I think mm-hmm. most people who, who aren't studying deeply into this time period, that, that doesn't 
really make any sense whatsoever. But right. he, he's one of many people who sort of have that same ideal. So leading up to the election of 1860, we see Johnson hoping to get on the ticket as a compromise candidate. Of course, it wouldn't mm-hmm. wouldn't work for him. There are four main candidates. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, the Republican candidate, uh, John Breckinridge, a Southern Democrat, John Bell, another Tennessean, a constitutional unionist, and Stephen Douglas, the Northern Democrat. Who does Johnson support? Breckinridge, He's rather a- unenthusiastically, but but <laughs> he did. He wanted to preserve the Democratic Party, and he felt Breckinridge was was the closest to do that, and felt that he would abide by the Constitution. And of course, Abraham Lincoln wins the election in eighteen sixty. All of his Southern colleagues in Congress resign, but Johnson stays. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Again, that belief in the Constitution and the Union. No matter what. And and this is where, no matter what. For, for me, Johnson really shines. And Johnson, for, uh, co- coming to Tennessee and moving to Tennessee, when you talk about the three Tennessee presidents, not a lot of good is said about Andrew Johnson. And one of the things that mm-hmm. really struck me when I visited your site, and you and you learn about where he stands in all this, I find him to be an incredibly brave character. He he's mm-hmm. His state is seceding from the Union. He decides to stay. And so his neighbors, people that he has lived with in Greenville and elsewhere, are really turning their backs. He's in danger, is he not? Mm-hmm. Right. And it was less danger in East Tennessee since it was so incredibly pro-Union, but, but yeah, definitely elsewhere in the state. Right. But but that area, I think it's sort of fought over. Greenville changes hands a few times during the war, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And, and he and his yeah. family are sort of forced to flee uh, for for a time. What is right. the relationship between Andrew Johnson and, and Abraham Lincoln early on? Um, yeah, I think it, it's mutually I think it's mutual respect for each other. We have several letters in our collection between the two while Johnson was serving as military governor. And Johnson would pretty clearly make known his frustrations um, and desires for his, his time there. And, you know, he, Lincoln was his well, direct supervisor, so to speak. And um, both were for the liberation of, of Tennessee, and Lincoln often acted in support of Johnson. Um, so he, he remains in the Senate during this time, uh, the only Southerner in the Senate. And then the election of 1864 comes about, and through an amazing turn of events, Johnson winds up as a vice presidential nominee. How how does that come about? Well, again, you know, almost the perfect choice. The Southern Democrat remained loyal to the Union, free to slaves. Um, he'd held Tennessee for the Union. He'd begun establishing a Union government. Um, he would appeal to those war Democrats, those who were more moderate. And symbolically, this was a great way for Lincoln to bring both sides back together again. So Lincoln, sort of the moderate thinking ahead that if the war is Mm -hmm. won and and these southern states have to come back, what better person to have on the ticket with him than a southerner to help help that process along? Right. It it sort of goes awry uh, at the very beginning. Johnson's speech on his inauguration day has come under heavy criticism uh, even to this day. Some say he was sick. Uh, Others say he was drunk. Uh, when he gave a meandering, sometimes incoherent speech. Uh, According to biographer Hans Trefus, Lincoln defended him, saying, and this is a quote, I've known Andy Johnson for many years. He made a bad slip the other day, but you need not be scared. Andy ain't a drunkard. Uh, What's your take on on what happened that day? Mm -hmm. Yeah, He was both sick and drunk. (laughs) Um, You know, (laughs) 
He'd been holding Tennessee together for three years. Um, dire circumstances. His wife had been turned out of their home. Her health was shattered. He lost a son, a son-in-law during the war. Um, he had even asked Lincoln if he could postpone his arrival in Washington and miss the presidential inauguration so he could see the inauguration of the civil government in Tennessee through. But Lincoln said he'd rather have, have Johnson there. So Johnson was sick and exhausted, um, had too much liquid courage to, to bolster him before he went into the chamber for his oath. And uh, some of it, even ironically, came from the hand of outgoing Vice President Hannibal Hamlin. But, but hmm. yeah, it, it got the better of him. Lincoln, and that, that was a very bad start. <laughs> it was a bad start. The, Lincoln and Johnson don't see each other again, I think, until April 14th. And they discuss what happened at the inauguration and some other things. But, of course, April 14th is a, a dark day in American history. It's the, that night that Lincoln is assassinated. Johnson was also a target. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, George Adderzot was supposed to assassinate Johnson, but he lost his nerve. So Johnson survives the assassination attempt. The next day, he mm -hmm. takes the oath of office. Uh, what was his very first decision as president of the United States? Well, he met with the Lincoln's cabinet and uh, asked them all to retain their positions, which was a rather fateful decision, as it turned out. Um, also immediately had to deal with the uh, funeral preparations for Lincoln and the capture and um, trial of the conspirators. I find it, again, a point of bravery for Andrew Johnson that this Southerner all of a sudden is president of the United States is still very divided. The war is over at this point, but they're big questions that remain that have to be answered in order to bring the country together again. And so who trusts Johnson uh, at this point, right? You have you have the radicals on mm -hmm. one side who are very concerned that this Tennessean is now running running the country. Uh, you have former Confederates who are m maybe thankful that they have a, a Tennessean in the White House that might help the process. Um, Dr. Paul Bergeron, one of the editors of the Johnson paper, called the first few months of uh, Johnson's presidency, Johnson's finest hour. Uh, mm -hmm. Congress was adjourned, and he really took action and went to the business of reconstructing the country. But when re Congress reconvened, they started defying Johnson's plan. And of course, this is a, a, a road downhill for Johnson. There's a huge split in the Republican Party. And eventually, uh, they start vetoing his uh, or, or turning over his veto uh, uh, powers, and things are really falling apart for him. Um, we're running out of time, so we're going to head right into the impeachment process. What What is the thing that really begins impeachment for Johnson, that process? Yeah. Clashing ideologies over Reconstruction, basically. Um, Johnson preferred the more lenient plan. Congress wanted the harsher plan with more protection for the freedmen. And um, they passed the Tenure of Office Act, which said that Johnson could not remove a member of his cabinet um, without approval from Congress. Um, a caveat was it was cannot remove a member of his cabinet during the term of the president who appointed him. Um, Johnson had been having trouble with Stanton, um, so he fired the Secretary of War, not only to um, test <laughs> the act, but also to, you know, to take out that discord that was going on in, in his own cabinet. Right. I think there are 11 articles of, of impeachment, if I remember correctly, none of which meet the criteria for high crimes and misdemeanors. But nonetheless, Congress presses on. Uh, how did the impeachment proceeding progress and what was the outcome? Well, the House of Representatives voted impeachment. 
um, Senate tried the case. The trial lasted from March to May, 1868. And in May, the Senate voted to acquit Johnson by a margin of uh, 35 to 19, which is one vote short of the two-thirds needed to convict. And um, Edmund Ross of Kansas cast that fateful vote. And uh, Johnson had a very brilliant defense team who handled the case well and encouraged the president not to attend the trial at all. Uh, it's an amazing, an amazing turnaround in American history. He manages to, to survive the very first impeachment process. We okay. are going to have to take one last break. We will be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. This is Jim Ross, and you are listening to Front Porch Radio, WKOM 101.7, located in Columbia, Tennessee. One of the best things about having kids is grandkids. And one of the best ways to get them outdoors is to take them fishing. It will open up a whole new world of conversation and wonder. It's easy to get started. For more information and instructional videos to get you going, visit tnwildlife.org. Purchase your license at gooutdoorstennessee.com. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen meat and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand-cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. The crimson and white jerseys. Front court to the rack and the flood. The sound of a buzzer beater. Got it to go as the buzzer sounds. The roll tide chant from the crowd. Three. Got it. And he's fouled. It can only be Alabama basketball. Join the Alabama Crimson Tide right here. On your home for Alabama basketball. The Crimson Tide Sports Network from Learfield. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. And welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking to Kendra Hinkle from the Andrew Johnson National Historic Site in Greenville, Tennessee. And we had just been discussing Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Uh, He's the first president to be impeached. uh, And uh, he was acquitted by a single vote. Kendra, what was his reaction to surviving the impeachment process? <laughs> I, I believe when they told him he he wept. I think I'm I'm telling you right. And um, also when they told Mrs. Johnson, she uh, grasped the hands of the person who brought the news and said, "I knew he'd be acquitted. I knew it." <laughs> what What, in your opinion, Kendra, was Johnson's most significant achievement as president of the United States? Hmm. Like the somewhat a complicated question. Um, I think we can find inspiration in his American Dream success story. Um, I think we can appreciate the purchase of Alaska, the annexation of annexation of Midway Island, um, even you know the restoration of the Navajo homelands, which you don't hear about much. But perhaps one of the best things that resulted from his quote time in office, I think, was the settling of the question of balance 
in power provided through the Constitution via the impeachment process. And, and then that may sound odd, but, you know, ultimately the 14th and 15th Amendments. And as we said, you know, the divisiveness transferred to the political arena and fear was rampant. Um, both sides lived with uncertainty, thinking the other side was going to usurp the power of the other. And there needed to be a way to prove that the balance of powers was still intact. And the constitutional caveat of impeachment was a way for that to happen. Both sides abided by the outcome. And that was a very important and pivotal thing. But in many ways, um, otherwise, we're still dealing with a lot of the struggles um, during the concepts of Andrew Johnson's presidency. Sure. This is a real test of the United States Constitution and its legitimacy. And uh, I, I think it worked. I think it worked remarkably well, all things considered. And fortunately for Johnson, he, he survives that process and, mm-hmm. and continues to be able to finish out uh, uh, Lincoln's term of office. Johnson is not nominated, however, for the presidency in 1868. Uh, General Grant is elected president. Um, Was he disappointed by that? Was he hoping to get the nomination? Oh, yes. He was. So he had had been... Really, he he was his whole career was sort of gunning towards a presidency. He finally gets it, not in the manner I'm sure that he wants. But so he he's disappointed by not getting the the nomination in 1868. What what does he do in instead? He comes back to Greenville for a while, um, but then he begins to yearn for a return to the political arena, um, and he set his sights on the Senate race originally um, soon after his presidency, but he lost with a narrow margin um, in the legislature. Next year, he ran for Tennessee representative, but also lost. And you got to keep in mind, these are some of his first losses and only losses he's experienced since about 1852. But in 1875, he was reelected to the Senate. And his quote was, well, 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 I'd rather have this information than to learn that I had been elected president of the United States. Thank God for the vindication. Huh. Interesting. So there aren't very many times in American history where a former president goes back into politics. I think John Quincy Adams is one. He goes back into the House of Representatives. But Johnson mm-hmm. gets a, a Senate seat. So is he able to take his, his seat in the Senate? He is. Okay. And he he serves for a short time. But then um, he comes home um, during recess and is visiting his daughter, Mary, up in Carter County, Tennessee, near Elizabethton. And had a massive stroke and died on July 31st, 1875. In 1875. What was the reaction of America at the news of Andrew Johnson's death? It was, it was an, an outpouring of grief. His, um, his funeral was attended by, by thousands here in town. They ran special trains. Um, they had flyers with, you know, where people could find food, could find lodging. And um, he was buried here atop what was then called Signal Hill, one of the highest hills in town overlooking the railroad and the Appalachian Mountains. Um, and he had he had picked that out as a, a burial spot. And that's where he's buried today. Uh, it is indeed. And There's it's considered a, an all obelisk. And it's considered a national cemetery, you said. It is. It is. Um, it has been active for 100 years, but it's recently transitioned to an inactive status. Um, so no new burials except for those who were spouses or or the veteran of of people previously interred here. 
and the cemetery is uh, looked after by the National Park Service. If I remember correctly, he had uh, very specific wishes in terms of uh, his funeral. Uh, can, can, can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, he asked that his head rest on his copy of the Constitution and that he be wrapped in the American flag. And those wishes were abided by. And uh, his tall monument is topped by an eagle um, draped with the American flag itself and in carving. And there's a scroll, and it says his faith in the people never wavered, which I think pretty well sums him up more than anything. Uh, his is an incredible story. I think maybe more than almost any other American president from from the beginnings uh, that he had, the very humble beginnings, losing a father when he's still an infant and and making his way in the world uh, to the point where he, he uh, becomes president of the United States, the highest office in, in the gift of his countrymen. And uh, uh, the bravery that he shows being a Tennessean, remaining a unionist, uh, becoming president and trying to to navigate everything that went along with that uh, at the end of the Civil War. I, I think he's one of the bravest Americans in in our history. Um, to go back to sort of how we started, he gets rough marks by historians, though, uh, as uh, as they uh, want to do with these uh, various rankings that they put out there. Um, have you ever taken part in, in any of the rankings, Kendra? No, no. You have not. Uh, I have uh, uh, on on a couple of those, and uh, I, I give Johnson high marks just for the <laughs> the bravery aspect. Mm. I think he was in a position. Uh, I think he was in a near impossible position, um, mm. uh, given where he was at that point in time in American history, to be able to to navigate through all of that. Um, talk to us a little bit about his family. Uh, does his wife survive him? How many children do they have? And uh, what is his legacy in regards to his family? They had five children, um, two girls and three boys, and Eliza did outlive her husband by about six months um, only. Um, One son they lost during the Civil War, and another one uh, shortly after their return home from Washington. The daughters um, had the, the greatest longevity, but only it's only through one of the daughters today that we have any Johnson descendants left. Are they active with the historic site? Is the family still active? A couple, a couple are. We we communicate with them fairly frequently. Um, well, it's a, a wonderful site, and I encourage all of our listeners to uh, visit the Andrew Johnson site in in Greenville. It's a an amazing place. Uh, what else can people see when they come to Greenville? What else is there besides Andrew Johnson? Relating to Andrew Johnson, or not necessarily town in general. Uh, the town in okay. general. Well, very active um, during the Civil War, of course. We have the Dixon Williams Mansion, where um, General John Hunt Morgan was was killed here during the Civil War. One of the town churches still has a cannonball embedded in it. Um, we have the Greenville Green County History Museum, um, the Car Museum, um, the General Morgan Inn, several restaurants downtown and shops. So it's a, it's a very delightful place to visit. For our, steeped in history. Yes, for our listeners here in Middle Tennessee, it's a wonderful weekend trip. It's it's one of my favorite places to go. Stay at the General Morgan Inn. It's one of the historic, I think, one of the historical uh, hotels in, in America. It's a, a beautiful spot. Kendra, you have the uh, the old courthouse there where the they had the Unionist Convention. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
um, I know that's that's a historic site now. Uh, uh, what do they do with that building? Um, it's still used as as the as the the county seat courthouse there. And interestingly, on its lawn, we have monuments to both the Union and the Confederacy. And I, I think, if I remember correctly, we're the we're the only <laughs> courthouse that does have monuments to both sides. So that really, really shows you how divided this area was during the Civil War. Well, Kendra, thank you so much for joining us today in our conversation about Andrew Johnson. You're so welcome. On behalf of Dr. Barry Gidcombe, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 for a journey through time. 